HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food and beverage radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Souther Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, especially considering uh, some good news that we just got. Like literally minutes ago. Mm-hmm. I know. Breaking. That's what people turn into the Speakeasy for, <laughs> yes, breaking news. Right. And that's why we are on the shortlist for best broadcast podcast or online series at this year's uh, Tales of the Cocktail, which is honestly great news. Great news because, um, I mean, for the obvious reasons. Uh, great news because we're in really excellent company. Um, the other three nominees are are excellent. They've been doing really, really good work. And I would be uh, thrilled to come in uh, second, third, or fourth to any one of them. Um, and also nice because it's an excuse to go back to New Orleans, where I haven't been since the before times. And I'm, uh, I, I don't know. It's just, it's such a fun town. I remember the first time I went for Tales in like 2017, my thought on Bourbon Street was just, why is no one stopping this? <laughs> uh, I mean, and I'm yeah. excited. I'm excited to get back to that energy because there's really nowhere else in the world quite like it. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm happy that we're nominated again. You know, uh, we jokingly say we have the Susan Lucci syndrome going on because we've been nominated every year that the the category has existed, yet we've yet to win. I'm I'm okay with it. I think I'm the one of the group here that's okay with that because once we win. Uh, or if we ever win, uh, we can't even be nominated for five years. So I'd prefer to be up on the marquee every year than uh, than than take it down and, and not be back up there for five years. I know that both you and Damon have expressed you really just want the plate. Uh, I think I'm okay. I've already got a plate, though, so maybe that's the difference. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, am- it's amazing how awards don't matter to you once you win them, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't think it mattered before either, but, but yeah. Sure, uh, yeah, well, sure, sure. That's what they all say. <laughs> And we are up there against some great ones. The, the Black and Brown podcast is awesome. Radio and Vibe, uh, you know, with Paul Clark is awesome. And here's a new one that I don't know. Do you know this one? I, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Shoshin Art Club? Um, no, that's that's the one that I'm the least familiar with on this list. I'm actually really excited to to check them out and give them a spin. I've got a, uh, I've got yeah, a nice same. long train trip ahead of me later on today, so I know exactly what I'm going to be listening to. Uh, looking forward to downloading it. Looking forward to, to checking it out. Yeah, 
Awesome. I mean, congratulations to us. Congratulations to everyone that's up there. It's, uh, you know, I'm excited to go back to New Orleans as well. I went last year um, and, you know, things seem to be pretty much back to normal, but still a bit of like hesitation. I'm hoping that this year it'll be kind of back into the full swing of things. And, you know, of course, if you can come down, that'd be great. You know, I, I lived there for several years and I love that town and I can love to hang around with you down there. We don't get to hang around much here in New York. Love to get to hang around with you down there and show you what New Orleans is all about, not just the French Quarter, get you out of... Uh, you know, Bourbon Street's great, but uh, thinking that New Orleans is the French Quarter is tantamount to thinking that New York is Times Square. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's the and that's the other thing about tales. That's the thing about like really any one of these. Like this is the advice that I gave people when they came to BCB uh, a few weeks ago. Is like do something that's not that. Like yeah. take take time to whatever you're into. Go to Central Park. Go to a museum. Go Broadway to, show, ball game. Go to yeah. Go to the Rockaways. Like yeah. New York is a beach town. Just something, experience yeah. a facet of New York that's not just, you know, the the festival because they're they're wonderful, but th they can be overwhelming if you let them. Yeah. So it's nice to to actually really get a full sense of the the character of the place that you're in while you're in it. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, speaking of beaches, today uh, marks the first official day of summer. Uh, what what, uh, what does summer hold for you, pal? Um, well, it holds a trip to New Orleans, uh, holds a trip to Denver. Um, I am going to try and because I, I am a beach person, I'm going to try and do the beach some more this year and really just kind of, uh, you know, this is a more chill summer than the last few ones that I've had for good and bad reasons. So I'm excited to just kind of see what New York in the summertime is like. I've never I've never really stood still long enough to kind of observe it. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. What about you, man? Uh, I mean, similar. Obviously, I'm going to New Orleans. I was going either way, whether we got up on the board or not. Uh, I go every year because I get to do the work that we do uh, in our field, but also I get to visit my old friends from when I lived down there. Plus, it's, you know, uh, it, you know, I think that I do stand still in New York a lot, and I go to the beach a lot here uh, during the summer times. But, uh, you know, as many New Yorkers do, it's time to escape New York in the summertime. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Because it gets, it gets so blisteringly hot. But nothing quenches blisteringly hot like delicious beer mm -hmm. delicious delicious beer or a nice carbonated uh uh glass of sparkling wine or an aperol spritz all all of these it's it's the time for all of them and uh it's a really interesting time to examine exactly what the flavor of that carbonation does on your on your palate man yeah. this is not one of our better segues this is the this is not the Tales of the Cocktail award-nominated segues that we're known for. But we're I'm just excited. super excited. I'm super yeah. excited to have our guest here. She's just written a really, really cool book called How to Taste. Uh, please welcome to the studio, Mandy Neglich. How are you doing, Mandy? Hi, guys. Um, happy to be here during the breaking news. I get to be the first to say congratulations. So, Oh, thank you. Thank, yeah. you. thank you very much. Uh, yeah, so you've been on the show before, so welcome back. Uh, sadly, I, I recall I wasn't there that day. Uh, who knows why, but you know things pull us away from the show all the time. Um, but really glad to finally get to speak to you face-to-face, -face, as it were, in the virtual studio. Um, and happy to hear about your, your book. Now, uh, remind everyone um, your sort of accolades. You're, you're a Cicerone. You're, you're, you're kind of the authority on beer, right? Yeah, I'm an advanced Cicerone. Um, kind of my whole tasting journey started with winning the National Homebrew Competition in 2016 and then getting a gold again in 2018. Um, but I also have my WSET in spirits. I'm a certified cider professional, uh, several tasting uh, certifications across different um, mediums like cheese, beer, obviously, and spirits. So uh, definitely a palate that's trained on a lot more than beer. But without, a, without beer, the whole journey wouldn't have started. 
I mean, I'm so stoked that the cheese was in that mix there. It's pretty interesting to me that there are people out there who are like focused on unique, uh, interesting things, like niche things to be tasters of. You know, our friend Nicola Risk, she's in that same kind of realm with, uh, with like olive oil. Yeah, and I actually end up having a couple olive oil specialists in the book. UC Davis has a whole um, department dedicated to olive oil tasting and olive oil grading. So talking to some of those specialized tasters was really fascinating and eye-opening. What is it that sort of drove you to, to write this book? I want to obviously want to dig in and talk about the book itself, but what what made you say to yourself, well, I've done all this stuff with beer. Uh, that's kind of where you're known. That's your wheelhouse. But you have all these other things in your in your bag of tricks, I guess. But what made you say, like, I'm going to try and teach the public how to taste? Um, I taught a lot of blind tasting classes, uh, specifically about beer, especially when I was training for taking the Master Cicerone exam. And it was amazing to me how much people just struggle with the vocabulary of taste. Um, just if you're not used to it, you know, it's not something if we, if anyone looked out the window and said the sky looked green, we would be like, you need to go to the hospital. But if someone tasted a wine and said <laughs> it tastes like licorice, even if there was no licorice kind of, you know, flavor compounds in there, no one would be like, you're crazy. You need to go to the hospital. You know, it's just right. not something we focus on. Um, so that was really interesting. And then people, once the blind tasting classes started getting big about beer, I still had a lot of people training for some training for different certifications coming through the classes just for practice tasting anything. And that's when I started kind of interviewing other professionals. Um, lockdown happened and I had a lot of free time to think about uh, tasting without other people tasting around me. And a book was born. Well, one thing, one thing I really enjoyed about the book is that when you when when you told me the book that you were that you were writing, I envisioned something that was like, okay, like you know, this is going to be a fun little primer about like how do you you know enhance your experience of tasting Gouda or you know Puglia wines or whatever. And then I actually saw the book and I was like, holy shit, this is like three hundred pages of of like of <laughs> of pretty involved text. And then I was like, okay, so this is going to be like a real, like almost sort of a textbook like journey. But I really appreciate that it's not. I appreciate that it's not, you know, didactic and it's not like this is how you should taste. And this is, you know, this is why this is this way. And this is how you should do it the right way. And I just kind of want to know how much did that because that's something that I take, uh, you know, very, very seriously when I do classes too. I always make sure to mention to people that like, I'm not the flavor police on a divine mission from God herself to tell people what tastes good and what tastes bad. So like how much, how much did that did making this topic, both a deep dive and something that was, you know, not pedantic, uh, resonate with you as you were writing it. Yeah, it's funny. When I turned it into my editor at first, it was 364 pages. So it's oh, down to like 280-something. <laughs> um, but yeah, my whole point was I really wanted it to be very conversational throughout the book. There's a lot of you know stories and just people having conversations. It's not super fancy. It's not super scientific. Um, but yeah, I wanted to delve into all the different areas of our senses rather than so many books that focus on a specific medium, you know, tasting whiskey, tasting wine, tasting honey. Um, I wanted it to be, this is tasting everything. This is getting to know your senses because once you get more comfortable with thinking about flavors and aromas and describing them, categorizing them, eventually judging them, which is one of the chapters, um, you can really do it with almost anything once you kind of familiarize yourself. So I really wanted it to be more focus on just getting to know your senses and how thinking about taste and smell make your life better rather than 
creating any kind of specialist in any specific medium. We don't need someone who knows the exact phenols in every olive, although those people do exist. This book is not for them. Sure, more of a, you know, teach a man to fish rather than give a man a fish uh, scenario. Right, and there's like, you know, a whole chapter about things like tasting tools, like, you know, flavor wheels and spider web, like spider tasting maps and things like that to just help people kind of open their eyes to how they could improve if they want to, or just fun, interesting ways to test themselves without getting overly technical um, in any, you know, individual medium. And and that's, and that's what I like about it is that like, and I, and I also have to admit, I am a, I am a painfully slow reader. So I, (laughs) I, as much as I tried, I only, I've made it about a third of the way through the book and then I skipped to the part that I was in and I read that too. But um, I, I wanted to ask, is there anything as you were doing this, as you were kind of ex- doing this, this incredibly deep and involved dive into this, not only, you know, the science of it, but the world of like competitive tasting, was there anything that you saw that really kind of surprised you? Anything that, that took you aback or anything that you weren't uh, expecting to find? Yeah, I didn't originally have, I think it's chapter 11 toward the end of the book that really ties our senses of taste and smell to our health. I didn't realize, you know, I'd always heard that your brain changes a lot when you're practicing smell and psalms. They can measure within a certain number of weeks of blind tasting how much their olfactory bulb in their brain grows. Um, But really the studies are pretty incredible, especially coming out of COVID. People who had large olfactory bulbs um, were much less likely to contract COVID at all or have really strong symptoms if they did. Um, And there's a ton of, you know, science about taste in our memory, fighting off dementia with uh, your sense of smell and things like that. Um, One Mm -hmm. of the scientists is really trying to get the smell test to be part of everyone's physical um, because they just think it's so important. It's something that we're totally not aware of. And so that came up again and again and again. And I was like, I think I gotta gotta include it in the book because it's like, I'm gonna talk about taste and this is such a big part of research. Um, Something good for people to know. Well, sure. Plus, it's pretty, honestly, pretty fascinating. You know, mm-hmm. um, at the top of COVID, I was an early adopter and lost my sense of taste and smell for nine days. And <laughs> it was before it was a recognized indicator of the disease. So I was just freaking out um, and terrified because my, you know, my whole world kind of as a chef and as a, a bartender revolved around my ability to smell and taste and deliver delicious things to people. So uh, I can see where that would be fascinating. Aspect from for the book, who do you think this book is for? What, like, what what is the audience that you're kind of targeting? I think anyone who's curious about what they eat or drink. I mean, a lot of um, people who are into cocktails have really uh, taken to it because um, you know it talks about combining flavors in one of the chapters. So how how do you create balance? How do things interact? But I think anyone who's curious about tasting pretty much anything, I think it's great for. Um, people who are into popular science as well. Um, mm-hmm. I think especially the first third of the book is somewhat science focused about the studies that come out about how our environment affects what we taste and how, um, yeah, our lifestyle affects our taste memories and things like that. So um, yeah, I think it's, I, I'm somewhat general science, but somewhat, uh, I hate to use the word foodies, but I don't know if there's a better, a better <laughs> word out there. My publisher's been saying it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we talked about it on the show before. There's a word for foodies, but there's not a word for people who drink a lot that isn't <laughs> derogatory. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> you know, you're, you're a drunk, you're a lush, you're a lout. Uh, there's no like, I like to drink. I am an enthusiastic drinker. Um, I actually, I like lush. I'm taking lush back. I've been doing yeah. that. I've been doing it unofficially, but now you heard it here first on the more breaking news. I'm, I'm officially reclaiming lush <laughs> you gotta get the as a positive thing. 
right. The summer blush. Let's do it. Yes. Hot lush summer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm fascinated about this because, you know, um, it just does turn out that the reason that I wasn't on the previous show this month uh, was because I was in, uh, I know this sounds convoluted, but I was in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, judging the New Orleans Spirits Competition. And it was my first official capacity as a Spirits Competition judge. And oddly enough, my second one is slated for next week in Los Angeles. Um, and like, you know, we as professionals sit around the table and we pull these unique and interesting and pretty uh, sometimes obtuse flavor, uh, rather aroma notes out of things, uh, which then, uh, you know, uh, sort of balances out to flavor notes as well. And um, it, it fascinates me to think that there's an entire, uh, you know, large, I think, portion of people out there who don't pause and think about the things that they're smelling and tasting and consuming and then catalog those things. And that's what leaves them with the lack of vocabulary, right? Yeah, I'm interested. What was your uh, score sheet like? What did it look like for your New Orleans Spirits competition? So it was kind of almost, um, I would call it sort of uh, kind of group judging. We were all seated at tables. Uh, tables had uh, five people at them, uh, and we would uh, get our you know flight of what whatever blind. We don't know anything about it uh, when it lands, except for maybe category. This is American whiskey. Uh, we would uh, smell and taste them, and we each had uh, a, a form to fill out on a computer in front of us. Uh, for uh, aroma, uh, initial taste notes, lingering taste notes, and um, uh, finish, uh, and uh, any special notes that we wanted to add for the, because in the end, the um, the maker gets all these notes from all these judges, and then we would rank it uh, on a scale from 50 to 100, uh, you know, anything that fell below 50 was out of the race, and then um, we would do all that silently, this giant room full of people quietly sipping and tasting. And then once we taste our flight, uh, that each table would then converse about the scores and create a single score from that table. Yeah, I have a whole chapter about judging in the book. And I think something that people don't really realize, you know, when you see these different medals on the bottles, you know, gold or, uh, you know, top of show at certain different spirit shows, um, mm -hmm. what they actually mean, because so many competitions weigh different attributes differently. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of like if you, a, a gold at one competition and a gold at another are not equal, but they're not necessarily lesser than each other either. Um, sure. And just, there's not like a really a universal way. Some competitions I've been to, for example, especially sake puts such emphasis, you know, a 10th of the score on aftertaste. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that that's something that is super important to consumers always, or that they would notice, you know, that's what they're winning gold medals for is having either a very clean or a very long aftertaste. Um, right. Yeah. And so then there's these, you know, studies that are like, oh, every winery wins at least one silver medal sometime during the year and things like that. Um, and I well, yeah, exactly. It's because, I think it's because um, I think it's because no no system of judging anything is, is perfect. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, that's what happens. Right. So I think it's uh, I'm going to be interested to see how the judging works at L.A. Spirits Competition. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm going to also be curious. To, we, you know, we judge everything blind, but on the very last day, they allow us into the room where all the bottles are lined up, and then we get to see maybe what we tasted, but we don't know when and how we mm -hmm. tasted it, right? So it's curious to, to see all that stuff. And um, I'm curious, very curious, to see how L.A. works in comparison to this one. And for me, strangely enough, that they're you know literally just three weeks apart um, as my first foray into this sort of angle of the world. One of the uh, subjects in my judging chapter is an IWC sake judge, one of the lead judges. And um, he said, it's so rare to find flawed sake because Japanese makers really don't 
put flaws out onto the market as readily as some other <laughs> other categories do. And so mm -hmm. they like take the flawed bottles and they'll put them all together on like a flaw table with like tags. Like we're tasting, you know, I can't think isolating elastate in this one or something like that. And they all like get really excited. And the most exciting part is trying these off flavor flawed sake right. as opposed to like what they're <laughs> judging is the top, which I think is so great. Right. And who knows, over time, maybe that flips the coin and then suddenly the flaws are the things we look for and, and, and desire, right? Yeah, like natural wine. Talk exactly. about Britannomyces. That used to be, you'd burn your winery before you'd let Brett come out in a bottle and now it's what people are looking for, so. Yeah. yeah well, I, go ahead. I, I definitely want to um, sort of dig into that. You know, the, the mention of, um, you know, the sake judging reminded me of one of my favorite passages from the book, uh, the, the part that I read, um, which is about when <laughs> the Japanese uh, Trade Commission, I think, tried to introduce Yokan to um, American consumers in 2019 and how there was this um, contrast between these, you know, these very, very um, serious, studious people who had been uh, part of families that had been making this dessert for generations. And it's this beautiful, subtle, umami, very, you know, practiced art. And then you had the Americans who were putting their spin on it, where they turned it purple, covered it in peanut brittle and put it on a stick. Um, <laughs> and I, and, and it's, that's one of a few spots where you kind of subtly dig at American palettes in there. And I do wonder, because this is something that I get up on a soapbox about a lot, but I do wonder if in your research, you came across uh, any, any thoughts about how we like our food fast and fatty and salty and sugary. And if that really shapes the way that we, you know, view our health and that we, we view the world around us. Yeah. I mean, definitely something that was cut out of those, you know, almost a hundred pages that are missing is um, in France, elementary school children eat a different meal every single day. They are very careful to make sure they're introducing them to new foods constantly. And they're not allowed to say anything is gross. Every kid eats the same thing. Um, and just to expand their palate when they're very young, you know, they're eating really crazy cheeses and meat jellies and all different kinds of things, pâtés when they're really young. Um, and it really opens, you know, the French appreciation of food. That's such a part of their culture, eating simple, really well-made things. Um, then you compare it to what kids are maybe eating, you know, in our American schools, which are things that are coming out of, you know, Cheez-It packages or even mm -hmm. with the organic movement, you know, now it's just Annie's cheese bunnies instead of Cheez-Its. Um, right. But uh, yeah, there's definitely like a big contrast there. And there's a lot of studies about, um, you know, things that different cultures, how they shape our palates. Think people in India are much more open to um, sourness because tamarind used to be such a popular seasoning and flavoring. So it made everything from, you know, soups to different baked goods sour. And that was just part of, you know, what they came up with. So things like vinegars and things like that is much more common than maybe what we're eating in America. Um, there's still a little bit of that in chapter three, but definitely hones down a lot. Yeah. Cause like, I, I mean, I, I, you know, when I was a, a teenager, I, I struggled a little bit with, with um, an eating disorder actually. And, mm. um, you know, learning to take actual just like joy in the food that we eat and not feel bad about it, like not view it as just like either fuel or empty calories, but view it as something that like we 
can actually like derive enjoyment from in a way that we don't need to beat ourselves up about, I don't think is something that we're very good at as a society. And I think that it, I, I firmly believe that if we instilled that in, you know, our, our children and ourselves culturally, then we'd have a better relationship with food in this country. I'm just kind of, you know, d- does that kind of trip, but I didn't write a book about tasting. So I'm wondering what you think about that. <laughs> no, and I wouldn't say that's like, um, a, a total thesis in the book, but, um, definitely chapter four, which outlines the tasting method is about approaching everything you taste with just like curiosity and interest rather than, I think I already know what this is in my glass or on my plate. And, um, kind of trying to come at it with all of your senses and just be curious about what's actually in front of you. You know, um, so much of what we taste changes every cocktail, you know, is going to be made by a different bartender that puts a different spin on it. And you can definitely taste the differences between those things. Um, and what you're approaching. So if you approach every mar- martini with just a little bit of curiosity and looking for a little difference or a little interest there, um, suddenly, you know, drinking your, uh, your gin jet, jet fuel, becomes <laughs> <it was laughs> a little bit more interesting and, a more, uh, yeah, varied in your life. And I think just those moments of focus really, um, yeah, create more memories, more interest, uh, better than just, we're still enjoying well, a cocktail, but maybe just a little differently. Well, right. I would, I would, I would like to think that based on what you just said, and I think we all know that taste and flavor have a lot to do with how we remember things. If we relegate ourselves to eating and drinking the same things all the time, then our memories aren't as vivid or as broad. Does that Absolutely. correlate? Do you think that correlates? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And just the way, like I said, the, how quickly when you start focusing on your sense of smell, you can actually see the changes in like brain scans in the size of things like your olfactory bowl, which is tied to the place where we store memories in our brain. Um, it grows quite rapidly because you're making all these connections. Your sense of smell connects to everything you smelled before, everything that you're smelling in context of that smell currently. Um, and you really store that for to make connections in the future. So it's a lot different than the way we connect words and language, the way that we connect sensory inputs. Yeah. And I, I loved that about the book. I loved, um, you know, digging into the science of it. Um, we, we should take a quick break here to hear from some of our sponsors, but I'm really interested in hearing about how uh, taste shapes the way that our brains work and how our surroundings shape the, the way that we taste. So we will be right back here on the Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network with Mindy Neglich, author of How to Taste. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. 
And we are back. You're listening to The Speakeasy here on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, we're here with the author of How to Taste, a new book that's coming out later this month, Mandy Neglich. And as uh, I was being ribbed for during the break, I uh, again, I'm a very, very slow reader. Um, I did a very, very close read of the very, very good book for the first uh, 100 pages or so of it. And then, as I mentioned before the break, I skipped to the part of it that was about me, um, which was a very odd experience. I don't think I've ever read a book that my, my name doesn't appear in it, but it was a very fun experience to be oh. like, oh, I know who that bartender she's referencing is. So uh, that was a fun story that actually I really like to tell in my life. But uh, Mandy, what what was going on there? How did how did I make a cameo appearance in this text of yours? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so we there's a whole chapter on pairing, and I really wanted to focus on things that were scientifically proven about pairing, like the way that the flavors interact, how our actual taste receptors change, because so much that's out there about pairing is in my opinion, quite esoteric and whimsical. Um, so I had a mustard sommelier uh, talk to me about mustard what? as part of the interview process. Um, and he really is a trained, he can grade mustard seeds. He's tasted mustards throughout the world. This um, is fascinating to me. I love mustard. And, and one of the issues that happened with me with my COVID was everything came back after nine or so days except mustard. I went oh. through my fridge and threw away 14 or so mustards because I thought they'd all gone bad, <laughs> uh, which which I was like, I don't know how mustard can go bad. And then it took over a year. I had to go to the New York Times. Uh, they wrote an article about how to regain your sense of smell. And I had to practice smelling mustards for a year to get my flavor for mustard back. Wow. Yeah. And and people don't really realize, I think, and this is Brandon, the psalm in the, the mustard psalm in the book. Uh, one of his big points <laughs> is those subtle differences, especially when you're using things like verjou versus vinegar, different mm -hmm. kinds of seed blends. Um, but one of the things he suggested to me was how uh, Dijon mustard really improves brownies. And I baked a batch, ate some of them, thought they were great, but I was like, I think he just got in my brain. You know, I think um, I'm just believing him because he said they were good. So I I created a little blind tasting challenge for some friends where I made espresso brownies, which is kind of the classic mm -hmm. add coffee to pump up your chocolate flavor standard, just my normal brownie recipe. And then brownies with mustard, put them in three different uh, cupcake holder colors and was testing friends on them. Um, and Greg's group of friends is some of my very good uh, food industry friends. It's a food stylist, a cheesemonger, and of course, Greg, our fantastic bartender. Um, and when I tasted <laughs> I mean, them, I was he's, so He's surprised. a fantastic podcaster. He's an okay bartender. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was really, they, two, I think, out of the three of them put the mustard brownie as their favorite in the blind mm -hmm. tasting. And then when I revealed to them, that the, it was mustard was the secret ingredient. They had just like such a boisterous reaction where some of my less uh, food focused friends kind of were like, oh, that's weird. Like Greg and Maricel and Claire were just like, no, you know, shooting expletives at me and like in shock and couldn't really believe it. So uh, I was, I was, I was offended. I was offended <laughs> that the, that, that this has been a thing for my entire life. And I was just finding about it out about it in my early thirties. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't believe it. And I, and I can't believe now that you've taste tested other people on this and they're like, oh yeah, there's great poupon in this brownie. Okay. And that's just like a normal thing for them. <laughs> My mind is being blown by this all over again. They're just kind of like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like, okay, whatever. Um, but you guys had the best reaction. So your, uh, your tasting group made it into the scene of the book when everyone says how great it is. And it really is. It just, um, kind of lightens up the texture of the brownie a little bit. It's like a little brighter, gives you a little bit more room around the chocolate on your palate to kind of appreciate it. But you would never say 
these brownies taste like mustard. It's just that little kind of bright difference. Um, they, they, people enjoy. they certainly didn't. And I never would in a million years have guessed that that was the secret ingredient, but dig a little bit into why. Tell us a little bit about yeah, why I, that pairing I, works so well. I think I kind of want to know why, but I also want to know how much are we talking about, you know, ratio to the brownie itself you know, is this uh uh, and and I'm, I'm assuming because of the book, but uh, that it's a fair amount. But you know, you, you can slip a little bit of anything into something and 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 not 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 notice it, right? Yeah, I would say I think so. The batch is for a 13 by nine pan, and I think there's three tablespoons of Dijon. That's considerable. That's considerable. Dijon is sharp ass mustard, right? Yeah, and I uh, when I was making the batter, I was like, this smells gross. Honestly, <laughs> I was like, this is going to be gross. And then when I baked them, you could the you definitely don't get that um, kind of like mustard forward vinegar anymore after they're baked. Um, but the reason it works is because um, some of the bitterness in the chocolate is balanced by that little bit of that hit of vinegar. That um, it doesn't come across your palate as sour, but it is the sourness that's balancing some of the bitterness. So you get a little bit more of the fruitiness, especially of like a really nice cocoa powder, which I was using for these tests. Um, a little bit, like I said, more of the bright characteristics of a chocolate as opposed to getting that like bitterness and something like espresso that really enhances that dark, rich sweetness. The mustard almost does the exact opposite where it's tamping down the bitterness, showing you some of the more interesting, brighter characters of chocolate. So this makes me immediately think, well, now I got to swizzle a little tiny bit of you know, Dijon mustard into my next hot cocoa, right? Definitely. Yeah. That's uh, the next Parmesan espresso martini can be a kind of Dijon <laughs> a bourbon, mustard cocoa. A bourbon, a bourbon hot chocolate with mustard. Yeah. Yeah. I'm calling it right now. That's the, that's the hot <laughs> drink of this holiday season. We'll get, uh, we'll get the high proof preacher right on this. Yeah. yeah. A couple <laughs> drops of a Dijon in the shaker will change everything. That's pretty incredible. What uh, do you have another example you could share with us from the book of unique pairings that you put together and, and blind tasted people on? Um, that's a good question. I don't feel like I, a lot of what I was doing in the book, and Greg has gotten to be part of several of these too, is just tasting people on different concentrations of sweet things. So, for example, doing like a vermouth pairing and seeing which people rate as the sweetest, or if they can even tell if they've ever thought about that. We just did a triple sec tasting recently. Um, where it's, it's pretty hard actually when you say rate these from sweetest to least sweet, uh, mm-hmm. how different we we come across um, on those ratings. And then those are the things that end up in our drinks. You know, a, a different triple set can totally change your margarita and it's not yeah, something sure. we often taste alone. Um, yeah, I find that to be one of the sort of, um, you know, failings of the typical consumer is that they never try things on their own. You know, I teach a lot of classes, uh, both virtually and in person, you know, and, and let's just use, since you said vermouth, let's use that as the example, you know, I would, I'll be making them a Manhattan um, uh, and they've never tasted the bitters on its own. They've never tasted the vermouth on its own. And maybe only a few of them have even tasted the whiskey on its own. You know, it's almost like, a, and then the, the, the statement that I always say to them is, I, I don't understand how you think you can make chicken soup if you've never eaten chicken. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. you got to take, you got to taste everything on its own. You got to smell everything on its own. You got to catalog those things. You got to, uh, I think for me, you know, I, I literally used to carry around a moleskin. Now, of course we have iPhones and things like that, but I, I, I go to the markets and I, even things I'm not buying, I pick them up, I smell them, I, I look at them, I catalog that and I, I write it down somewhere so that I have a, a Rolodex to go back and refer to. And I think that, of course, that's because I'm in the business I'm in. I don't expect the average consumer to do that, but I do expect that they would at least be curious enough to try and remember those things. Yeah. And one of the things I suggest in the book as an exercise is just, I think a lot of dessert recipes 
kind of use vanilla extract as a crutch mm-hmm. and try half of your batch without vanilla and half with and see what you actually like better and what is more interesting. I would say most chocolate chip cookies taste more like vanilla than they do like anything else, um, mm-hmm. which I think is a shame. I typically leave vanilla out of my chocolate chip cookies, but um, it's just something that it's a flavor we don't even realize. First of all, vanilla, when we smell it, our brains automatically kind of input sugar, even if it's not there. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of the RTDs that are saying no sugar on them are using vanilla extract um, or vanilla vanilla in the flavor to mm-hmm. kind of insert that sugar. Um, but it's something people never think, you know, they're putting in a whole tablespoon into a batch of something. They never think about why they're doing it. That flavor is like so pervasive. And once you start sniffing it out, like um, there's definitely some lemon seltzers that to me smell so strongly of vanilla that I kind of can't stand it that other you know, yeah. people just don't notice. <laughs> Yeah, I, f- I find that too. Even, uh, I don't know, I could be totally crazy here, but I drink an inordinate amount of just plain seltzer. And, and there's like, I don't know, one out of 20 bottles that I open up and I'm like, I think they, they, this was the first bottle after they ran something through the same line. You know, I can yeah. taste some like hint of raspberry and I'm like, what's going on here? Um, yeah, I, I do find it interesting that the, uh, that, the, that the average palate out there does connect things that are totally disconnected. And again, an example from my life is people... Uh, you know, cinnamon is a common thing in, in a lot of bittering agents and people often associate cinnamon with sweet. You know, they say, you know, they smell it from grandma's pie cooking and apple pie and there's, you know, cinnamon in there. So they, they associate it with sweet. But then I'm like, are you sure? Here's a stick of cinnamon. Bite it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is this is wildly bitter. This is peppery and sharp. It is not even remotely sweet. Uh, so, like, how have we tricked our senses into seeing things for what they aren't? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that we were talking about earlier about the brain. We There's so many sensory inputs coming in to our brain all the time that if we weren't taking some kind of shortcut, like we wouldn't be able to like even get through the day. You know, if every single time you tasted vanilla, it was a complete shock to you and you were trying to put it in context of your life, you your brain would just be overwhelmed. You would not even be able to move your limbs and things. <laughs> um, so basically, you know, you get cinnamon three times in an apple crisp, in a, I don't know, Mexican hot chocolate in a something else where you're getting sweet context and you're like, okay, your brain's now like shortcut. When I smell this, we're expecting sweetness. I'm going to do, you know, where I release insulin and get the body ready for something sweet that it's about to have. I can't, you know, focus on this every time. This is now learned. Um, same thing with vanilla. And actually cinnamon's one of the compounds in the uh, book that culturally is completely different. Other cultures, especially Asian cultures, when they smell cinnamon, thinks of a savory context. Um, they mm-hmm. relate it more to anise than they do something like sugar. So sure. Um, well, I mean, like uh, all spice, I think falls into the baking spice category for us. Mm-hmm. But of course, all spice in the islands is is jerk chicken. You know, um, I, I think that I, I, I see these things all the time. You know, as as kind of former back of the house and current front of the house type person. Um, and I, I, I just, I guess I'm not shocked that uh the people around me uh, mostly americans i'm here in america i think that that don't make those connections but you know i even say all the time like it's funny to me that we think of like uh you know cinnamon and allspice and nutmeg as like winter spices when they all come from islands where there is no winter (laughs) exactly exactly. you know so we've just we've made them into we've you know we sort of crushed that 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 round peg into the square hole or whatever the analogy there would be um to make it whatever we want it to be well, and a lot of those baking spice flavors, things like eugenol, which is clove, is like a very strong fermentation flavor too. So mm-hmm. cultures that have more of a fermentation forward, things like sauerkraut or kimchi and things like that, 
that automatically also becomes um, a savory. That eugenol is the same compound that's in something like a clove. Um, and you, you kind of get this context of something like savory or even sourness with those fermented flavors. Um, same with like a German wheat beer, same compound uh, that's giving you that cloviness. Uh, it's mm -hmm. not necessarily always even from the spice. Yeah, it's fascinating to me how, you know, when we break things down to the word you just said to their sort of base compounds that, mm -hmm. you know, numerous compounds are found in numerous places, but we associate them kind of with a singularity. Um, but those things can be found where they, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example right now, but like. Well, like we were, Parmesan we, cheese and stinky feet, same compound. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> or like, was, oh, uh, delicious, expensive Parmesan. And then you're like, ew, gross gym socks. But same uh, thing. Right. Isobaric acid, baby. I mean, I wasn't going there, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, we're, but we're here now. Yeah, here well, we are. And and honestly, this this brings me back to one thing I wanted to make sure that we that we talked about was your um, sort of seven step process to actually tasting, which was like mm -hmm. something that I I was um, not expecting to to have a, as involved of a discussion about in the book as as you do. But it's really interesting, you know we again, we, we taste things automatically. Sometimes I think, especially in this country, we're used to putting food in our mouths and like not tasting it either, either deliberately or subconsciously, um, that the act of training ourselves to like consciously taste something is sort of a relearning that our brains have to do. And the first step of that is, you know, observing your setting, observing your surroundings and kind of taking in, okay, where am I? And what are perhaps some of the expectations I'm having about the way this is going to taste. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, yeah, the first of the seven steps, which are, are all S's because I had to try to do something catchy, um, is set, <laughs> set slash setting. Um, and it is just, if you can't control your setting, it's taking in your setting. Um, one hint that I give in the book that I think is important is if you're in a very loud restaurant, it's not the best time to spend a ton of money on a very expensive wine. Um, the way that sound affects our senses is it really dampens them a lot. Um, so, you know, maybe well, get something that's tasty, more middle of the range uh, and save the really expensive stuff for a quieter moment. Um, but yeah, taking well, in. I, I love that. I, I remember being a kid and, uh, and driving down the highway or whatever. And uh, if, uh, you know, the music was too loud and, and maybe there was some extra traffic going on, um, you know, my mom would be, she'd have to turn the music down. I can, mm -hmm. I can drive better when it's quieter. <laughs> and something interesting, I mean, so the corda tympani, which is the, one of the nerves that our taste signals literally follow to the brain goes through our ear. So if there's a ton of bass or, you know, just volume jostling that nerve, it's really jostling those signals and making it a little bit harder for our brain to interpret. And it's like, once you know that, that that's the path it's taking, it's like, oh, of course the way things sound affects taste. But if you don't know that, it seems kind of, you know, out there that taste and sound can be so connected. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's fascinating. Well, that's one thing that's that's cool about the book is how connected everything is how connected our our sense of you know the the temperature of the room the the setting just the one of my favorite bits um in the part that i read is about the <laughs> the carrot um and and your all of the expectation and beliefs and just cultural awareness that was placed upon this one particular carrot would you mind telling us a little bit telling us that story yeah i saw the um 
episode of Chef's Table about. So I'd always wanted to go to Blue Hill at Stone Barns anyway, just, you know, escaping the city to this beautiful restaurant sounds wonderful. But once the Chef's Table episode came out and Ruth Rachel says, I ate the carrotness of carrot and it's like a carrot served alone on a plate. I was like, oh my gosh, I have, I have to go see what the carrotness, carrotness of carrot is. Like, um, so it's, it is, they serve it on this at Blue Hill. It's a whole course to itself, a very um, matte plate that honestly looks a little bit like a pedestal. They tell you about how the <laughs> carrot was grown out in the, the field. They say, don't eat the greens, just eat the carrot. And I'm like sitting there in this beautiful room with 20 foot ceilings. And I'm like, here it is, like the carrotness of carrot. And again, maybe Greg, this is to your point, maybe my thing about digging on pallets, but I closed my eyes for the first bite of carrot. And I was like, huh, it's like carrot. <laughs> um, and the second bite, I kept my eyes open. You know, you're looking at this beautiful display. You're looking at all these, you know, white clad waiters. You're out on the farm. And I do feel like the second bite of carrot was much more carrotness of carrot that I was looking for. Um, so I do think, as you know, I love what Blue Hill's doing, but the context is very important there. And I think if you did Blue Blue Hill at Stone Barns to go, um, it wouldn't be quite as effective. Sure. I, I, I would also go, I would, I would at least conject maybe that, that 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 pendulum can swing in both directions though right i can mm-hmm. i can recall uh, i don't want to make myself sound flowery especially my younger self when i was very young and i was applying to culinary school and we were asked to write an essay about our, our best meal and you know i wrote about being uh, i grew up on the beach i wrote about being literally on the sand with my brother uh and eating uh, um you know a simple uh, i think it was like toasted cheese sandwich, you know, um, and granted, I'm, I'm certain that that environment had a lot to do with it, but what, what I was really writing about was with who I was with. Right. So who you're with can also lean into like what your experience is. Right. Absolutely. And toward the end of the book, um, one of the chapters is kind of about how taste and eating and whatever sharing, um, affects other parts of our life, like our emotions and our memories. And there's a pleasure researcher who talks about how sharing food, someone automatically makes you like them better. Um, Mm. How eating somewhere that might seem uncomfortable if you enjoy the food makes you immediately feel more comfortable in your setting. Um, So there's definitely subconscious things going on as far around around eating and especially talking about food and connecting with people that um, are hard to quantify but are definitely real. So given that it is obviously quite difficult to quantify, um, how did you quantify it? No, I'm kidding. Um, when you're, when you are tasting something, what is your ideal, uh, and, and maybe it changes for things you're tasting. So let's, let's pick something when you're tasting beer, what is your, what is your ideal setting? I, mean, I definitely think it, um, if, I, if I'm tasting it to judge it or because I'm being tested on a blind tasting or for quality assurance, you definitely want as colorless a setting as you can, as quiet a setting as you can, um, the temperature you want to be comfortable, not too hot, not too warm, um, just so you can really kind of let everything else fall away and focus on um, what's in front of you. Something that's also, I think, a little uh, not appreciated in tasting, especially something like beer, is the sound. You know, even the sound that a carbonated beverage makes in your mouth is part of the tasting experience. Mm. And if you're somewhere loud or with background music, you can't really uh, enjoy that as much. Um, but if I'm tasting beer with friends, that's, you know, a totally different context. I still don't want it to be quite so loud. And if I want people to focus on the beer, like in my tasting classes, we'll try to clear out, you know, any big posters or art or thing like that, but it doesn't have to be, you know, sterile white walls and a sterile white table. Um, so it's definitely just adjusting for the, uh, 
the moment. Um, then again, if you want to remember that specific beer, like I, I don't know if it actually made it in the book, but tasting beer like at uh, West Veteran in Belgium, like I still, when I smell West Veteran beer, I can picture myself sitting outside of the brewery. You can smell the mash happening in the brewery. You're looking out into the, the hills of Belgium and like that's a very strong sensory memory that I have. So definitely different, uh, different settings for different reasons for tasting. So like using that as an example, when you smell those, uh, you know, compounds and flavors that remind you of this specific time and place, do you think that maybe that skews your rating on something? You know, like, would you be like, oh man, this, this just from aroma alone, I'm giving this a higher mark. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. And that's why I think like those, I was asking about your judging, um, uh, your judging score sheets, because some people get very specific about like, does this yeast character match the style? Is it in line rather than just saying out of 10, how much do you like this as a judge? Mm-hmm. Because I do think uh, that's very easy to sway. You know, if I'm like, I love Belgian beer and this smells more like a Belgian beer to me than a German beer, I'm giving it a higher mark as far as how much I like it. Maybe not the parameters of what it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that's definitely something that you get into. It's also something you can go out of your way to um, kind of manipulate in your brain. If you are someone who's practicing for blind tasting or wants to get to know a specific spirit, maybe a specific gin, you know, go taste your Ford's gin in a room where you're staring at something blue and you're thinking to yourself like Ford's gin, Ford's gin, Ford's gin, Ford's gin, (laughs) as you're tasting Mm -hmm. it and trying to connect it to your memory. And it's actually really surprising how well that works. I, uh, I still see like a light blue sheen when I, um, taste wit beer, because that was something I was having trouble calling on my early, uh, Cicerone test days. And I was staring at a uh, blue construction paper as dorky as that sounds too. You know, it doesn't sound dorky at all. It doesn't sound dorky at all. And I wish, you know, sad that Damon couldn't be here today because his dog is being a bad boy, whatever. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that's the message he wrote us. Um, boy but, with an uh, eye, by the way. Boy, that's right. Um, but uh, I think he would chime in. You know, he's got a degree in um, uh, graphic design, and I, I'm certain that, that what you just said correlates to how graphic designers create branding. Absolutely. Um, yeah. There's a chocolate specialist that's in one of the chapters, and she consults on the way that they some chocolate companies make their labels for their bars, and they'll literally have tasters say, what color does this taste like to you? and put that on their label. And then one of the brands she worked with, she did it blind and said, you know, everyone paint this piece of paper with like what colors this chocolate is giving you. And they were like all trained chocolate tasters. And she showed me a picture. I'll have to put it on the website for the book because it literally, they almost exactly match. They're all like yellow, pink, and brown. And that's exactly what they decided to put on the label. Um, So that's definitely the color association and the way things are designed is definitely something that is tied to flavor as well. Yeah, that stuff is fascinating to me and probably Greg as well, given that the two of us are colorblind. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I get it. I totally understand. I mean, it, you can tr- translate that to also whatever the logo is, whatever the imagery is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit, diff- little bit more difficult to say to someone, you know, what shape does this make you think of? I guess, but but but, but I bet if they all drew a star and a, and a circle, then there'd be stars and circles on the label or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, well, and there's um. There's actually two shapes that are scientifically proven to have taste, uh, a boba and a kiki, which I think you can probably imagine. The boba is very like soft edged and it is rated by people to taste sweet, even though it's just a shape. And the kiki is like almost like a many pointed star and people think it tastes sour just by looking at it. Um, And they're totally, you know, just outlines of shapes that people 
grade. And those are the two that always come back sweet and sour. Huh. Are, are any of them, the, the cover of your book has a lot of um, abstract shapes on there. Have you been, have you been um, subliminally conditioning us before we even turn to page one in your book about uh, to, to taste certain things just by looking at it? That's a good question. I have to say, I, I don't know what your experience was with your books other, but uh, I had very little control over the, um, the cover. I was able to say, I don't like certain ideas, but not, uh, I didn't have a lot of say over the final, but I love it. I love the color scheme, love a martini glass on the cover of any book. So, uh, very happy with it, but, um, no, no subliminal message there unless my designer was, uh, sneaking in a, a message to all of us or, or so, or so Mandy claims online. Yeah. We weren't able to, we weren't able to, to follow up with this fine. line of questioning. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's a great looking book. It's a great read. Um, do you have any events coming up that you want to, uh, let people know about for the launch? Yeah. The first two events in New York are on the 28th and 29th. They're both in Brooklyn. Um, one is a cheese tasting at Archistratus. One is at Talayat, the book party. We're tasting beer having some drinks and celebrating. And then the rest of the summer, I'm kind of headed out to the beach towns where people are um, vacationing. So I have a couple dates in Cape Cod, a couple dates in Portland, Maine, Avon, Connecticut, Jersey Shore. Um, all the dates are on howtotastebook.com. And I'm pretty excited because a lot of you know book events you go to is maybe based on conversation or um, a book reading even, but every single one of the how to taste uh, book events were tasting something. So you will be fed and get to learn the tasting method um, everywhere I go, which I'm really excited about. That's that's very cool and, and, a, and a great um, draw to get people to come down and, and, and uh, check out the book. I'm bummed to say that uh, those dates you just listed for New York, I'll be in L.A. doing the L.A. Spirits Comp. Um, but I'll be thinking of you because I'll be tasting a bunch of stuff. Um, well, we're, we're definitely trying to do a fall, you know, once like you were talking at the beginning of the show, there's a, kind of a mass exodus in the summer from the city. So we're definitely yeah. going to do a fall revival when everyone's back back home doing some events around new york yeah uh well i'll be sure to catch one uh, and yeah. meet you meet you in person finally yeah i uh, need to come to your bar and get a boulevardier so you can be uh part of the official the official list of boulevardiers <laughs> what's the official list of boulevardiers I, I just have been getting a boulevardier at like almost every bar i go to for the last year or so it's called the boulevardiera um, shout out to Taylor Swift. So we got to get you on the Boulevardiera. Greg has been around several of them. I, it's true. I, I have. I mean, you know, that is, that is certainly in the wheelhouse of Amoria Margo. That's, uh, yeah. that's, 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 uh, part of our core. Um, I've also, I've also learned, uh, that I have a lot of hot takes about the type of glassware that I prefer a Boulevardier to be served. in. I didn't, I didn't realize how deeply unpopular my opinions were until I started immersing myself in those. I think you've just been influenced by the Negroni too much. That's entirely possible, and I will and I will own that. But I I'm a I'm a rocks glass guy. Actually, I I Same. kind of enjoy it in a rocks glass. With it's one of the few drinks I actually really kind of like down, like mm-hmm. not on the rocks, but still in a rocks glass. Same. I'm in the same camp. Um, Aha! See, see, see. <laughs> I'm, not as, I'm not as weird as you led me to believe I was. Well, I don't know. That's just. Uh, I mean, don't forget, twelve years of Amori Margo. We only have the two glasses. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe. So, maybe. Which is, maybe my point wasn't as strong as I thought it was. A second which is ago. just telling of what the, what glassware I prefer. I don't know. I uh, I know that uh, glassware can change your opinion on, on things, and certainly there's glassware out there that can change aromas of things, which will change the way that they taste. But uh, you know, for practical purposes, I like to drink everything out of the same glass. That way, the the, the playing field is leveled. Yeah. 
eliminate some of the elements that can change it up. Sure. Uh, and I'm certain that that comes up in the book as well, especially with liquids. You're talking about smelling and tasting. Glassware does does play a, a huge role, especially in the world of beer and wine, right? Yeah, there's definitely a couple of pages in there on um, glassware, for sure. I think it has less of an influence than we would like to believe. But uh, I kind of I do, too. That's why I... <laughs> <laughs> if it's in a glass and the glass is big enough for you to get your nose in, you're in pretty good shape, I would say. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, this is fascinating, and I, I'm really going to – I've already pulled up a window. I'm going to order the book from a local bookseller or go pick one up somewhere because uh, I don't like the big guys. Um, yeah. But I want to get a hold of your book and check it out, uh, and I would love to see you in person at the bar having a Boulevardier, but also uh, when you have a, another event in the city later uh, after the summer or whatever, um, and come and taste some stuff and see your process and, and figure out what all the seven S's are. Yeah, definitely. That, that's a good teaser. We'll, we'll see what the seven S's are and uh, get a Boulevardier for sure. Yeah, love it. Um, well, uh, I think we're sort of at the end here, so I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, um, uh, that's it for this week's episode of the Speakeasy uh, here on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, go to the website, heritageradionetwork.org. Uh, click on the beating heart, and you can donate to keep uh, shows like this one on air. Um, and then please, please, please go and check out uh, Mandy's new book, How to Taste. Uh, and then you can find her on Instagram at Drinks with Mandy. Uh, and you can also find her on uh, your TikTok of the same name, right? Yep. And then you also have How to Taste book uh, on TikTok and howtotaste.com for the book uh, and, and uh, the schedule for the tour dates, right? Exactly. Drinks with Mandy, How to Taste. You'll, you'll, you'll get to the book uh, eventually through those too. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. Well, hey, thank you uh, so much for joining us. And thank you to you listening in for tuning in for this episode of The Speakeasy. Um, come and catch us next week. We're going to have the uh, folks behind the Lesbian Bar Project on talking about where exactly all of America's lesbian bars have gone and that whole uh, documentary that they made about that trend. So I'm really looking forward to that show. And Mandy, we appreciate you coming on this week. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. And uh, congrats again on making the, the final list. Have fun in New Orleans. Yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, all right, thanks, everybody. It's a great show. We'll talk to you next week. Cheers. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's going to save your soul. The, the Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food and drink radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.